with all the will in the world, nothing's ever going to change when it comes to tackling overrepresentation in UK employment. If the recruitment industry do not understand overrepresentation, do not understand why people face barriers into work. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Joe Major. Joe brings 22 years of recruitment industry experience, and she founded diversity and recruitment because of her drive to get EDI on the agenda of recruitment teams. Joe believes that recruiters can influence and really lead the change needed to tackle underrepresentation in UK employment. Through training and advice, she helps recruiters get to grips with EDI and gives them the insight, tools, and the confidence to attract diverse talent and make their process equitable and accessible, recruit inclusively, and to confidently partner with their clients and hiring managers. Joe believes that a candidate's identity, background, and circumstances should never be the reason they don't make it into the recruitment process. Welcome, Joe. Thank you for being here. Hi, Mark. Thank you for that introduction. Perfectly done. <laughs> Thank you. I, I practiced. Um, so you referred to me by originally Chikare Ibakwe, who's been on the show before. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She's wonderful. Really enjoyed my conversation with her. But I've actually heard your name from a variety of different people. Um, I think most recently, another guy who I had on the show who's a really successful entrepreneur is Ben Broughton. Um, how what what do you how do you know Ben? So I originally met Ben when I did a stint at Appsco. He was one of the chairs that I looked after essentially. And then when I set up the business, Ben's super supportive of founders, other founders. So he reached out to me, saw what I was doing and was like, can we get you in and and train the team? So I did um, a couple of projects, internal training, and everything worked out really well. And I'm actually one of of their training partners. So I do work with their external clients. They're really, really progressive in their client services and the ED&I agenda is something that's really important to Ben and the team. And they've kind of surrounded themselves with a group of very, very varied, very diverse D&I trainers, me being one of them. Um, and it's just kind of an extra an extra piece of their client services portfolio. That's which awesome. Is really promising. Ben, well, that was a really cool interview. So if people haven't heard it, we'll, li- we'll link to it in the show notes. But his recruiting firm has just absolutely taken off. They're growing so quickly. Mm. And it is really clever and strategic how they're not just filling jobs for customers. They're Mm -hmm. actually providing Mm -hmm. all kinds of solutions and uh, diversity and inclusion being one of the things that they partner Mm -hmm. with clients to help them to understand and to to improve that. So... um, What's actually? Can I just ask about terminology for a second, Joe? Because you are using the term EDNI, and mm-hmm. I've he- also heard the acronym DEI. Is that the same thing, just in mm-hmm. a different order? Yeah, they. I mean, they all make. They all mean the same thing. You know, there's there's EDNI, EDNI, equity and belonging. It's the acronyms used in loads of different ways, and it 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 means the same thing, and. 
sometimes people are a little bit pedantic and may correct and say, no, it's this and that. There's no real, there's no real laws to it. It's just whatever's comfortable. I tend to say DNI a lot because I say DNI about a thousand times a day through the work that I do and it's just quicker. But yeah. we all know that we mean the same thing. <laughs> okay, that's fine. I just wanted to double check. And so yeah. could you give a, a, just a brief introduction to this topic in terms of like what recruiters um, need to understand about mm -hmm. diversity, equity, and inclusion, and like what maybe some of your core beliefs about why this is important work that all recruiters should really be um, not just aware of, but should be contributing actively to driving this. Mm, so starting off with that, with that last the last question. So I think that I mean I don't make. EDNI super complex for recruiters. I I'm really intentional in terms of talking to recruiters in a language that they understand because I've been on desk and I bring all that understanding and knowledge with me. Um, I think that recruiters are they're at the coal face. Okay, so they are in the you know they're in the talent market. They're responsible for you know, I think was it 50 or 60% of UK hires, um, you know, across the country. And they're in this kind of like really unique position where they're seen as, you know, that professional external talent arm. And a lot of the time as an industry, we pride ourselves on that level of expertise, that deep market knowledge, the expert expertise that we've got around the disciplines that we recruit, the salary surveys, you know, the tech stuff, the top, the, you know, the hot topics. We, you know, we're, we're, we're very much focused on that consultancy side and that advisory side rather than just ultimately filling jobs. Well, I think the most successful recruiters are anyway. And um, what I kind of got a sense of was that we were potentially missing an opportunity to really evolve and develop additional services and support to our clients by not thinking about our responsibility for diversity and inclusion, especially around equitable, inclusive and um, accessible, accessible recruitment. And a lot of the a lot of the training, a lot of the consultancy, that's in the EDNI space was very much kind of focused on the client side. So there was lots and lots of investment going on with 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 our end clients, but there really wasn't enough. Um, there wasn't enough support. There wasn't enough training. There wasn't enough focus to put recruiters in a position where they could strategically support their clients with their EDNI agendas. And I guess I was kind of thinking, well. If all this support and resources is being piled into client side and nobody's looking at the talent supply line, which is the recruitment industry, with all the will in the world, nothing's ever going to change when it comes to tackling overrepresentation in UK employment. If the recruitment industry do not understand overrepresentation, do not understand why people face barriers into work and don't understand what their role is in terms of breaking down those barriers and making sure that people can access their recruitment services. So kind of my my role, my kind of like mission is to make DNI something that recruiters feel comfortable about, feel like they've got a fire in the belly about when it comes to tackling inequality and breaking down those barriers into work. And to be able to then 
after they've evolved their services and really looked at what they've done, they can then take that that learning and that expertise when it comes to inclusive, accessible and equitable recruitment and, 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 and feed that into their clients and educate their clients and build that kind of that kind of toolkit approach. So it's more more than just recruitment services, it's advisory. EDNI advisory. That's the vision anyway. <laughs> awesome. Okay. I like it. And um, but what motivated you to go into this uh industry, like to instead of continuing in re- recruiting, to go into training mm. and specifically to focus on this area? Mm. Um there was a number of things, a, a number of kind of like moments in time that all collided and it you know, and, it, and it, it kind of got me to a place where this was what I knew that I wanted to do. Um, so it was a bit of a journey that I kind of went on. So I'd worked my way through my career, 17 and a half years, actually being on desk, being a billing re- recruiter and a billing manager, building out functions and disciplines and all that, you know, great stuff that we tend to do as recruiters. Um, and I'd never really thought about inequality. I'd never thought about diversity and inclusion. I'd always thought about discrimination. I'd always been hyper aware of that from my kind of like formative ADECO days. So I was always a very ethical recruiter and had those values. And I guess I'd chosen markets to work in. So I spent a lot of time in the education space. I'd spent a huge amount of time in the nonprofit space. And that for me gave me social awareness that took me beyond the privilege that I had as a recruiter and really opened my eyes up to actually what were the challenges, at, you know, outside of work, outside of like my limited lens. So I was exposed to, um, especially in the nonprofit space, exposed to lots of people solving problems that were due to marginalization and people not having access to resources. So that gave me a very, very solid social radar. And that made me be a really conscious recruiter. So there was always that kind of that desire, that will, that passion to make a difference to other people's lives, whether that be potentially not directly, maybe career wise, but you know, end users of of, of recruit of of charities, that was down to the talent that I put into those organisations as to you know how well those areas did within that charity, which ultimately you could say has a knock on effect to the beneficiaries of those organisations. Um, and I, I I kind of like got to a stage in my career where I was thinking about you know what happens next, and I'd um, decided to go into the HR space to get that kind of broader perspective of what. HR recruitment, EDNI, LD, uh, and all that kind of like human people stuff, how it all kind of interlinks together. And um, I joined a company, really interesting organization. Um, and, you know, there's a couple of things. There was this some lived experience stuff. Um, there was also an opportunity to work with somebody that just massively inspired me and just flicked a switch when it came to the EDNI piece and that person subsequently became my um, my manager when I moved into an, an internal learning and development piece. And there was opportunities that arose within that organisation due to some of the challenges that they were facing due to over-representation and potentially hiring very, very similar people from similar demographics and similar backgrounds. 
And I'm very much a solutions-based person. So instead of kind of thinking, oh, do you know what? Some of this stuff isn't working for me. I was kind of, let's go out there and find out how we can actually evolve our culture, how we can become a more inclusive place to work, how we can be more focused and strategic with our social purpose. And I was at the right time at the right place where that business gave me an opportunity to do that. And that's where it actually started. That's where I started to get paid for the passion. Um, And then I started my long, deep journey into self-education. There's, you know, there is courses and programs that you can go on. But for me, it was just about reading, listening, watching, having conversations with people. And I'm still doing that every single day to broaden my horizons and perspective because I've got a limited, limited kind of lens on this stuff. Really interesting. Do, do you know, that's something that Chikare said to me as well, is that the responsibility for us all to be self-educated and actually to take mm-hmm. an interest in it and just um, learn about it, read books, talk to people and so mm. on. Um, but you've taken that further and decided, wow, like you're so passionate about this, you're going to actually create a business around it. When, when did you launch the business? I launched the business at the end of May last year. Okay, fantastic. Wow. So mm. um, <laughs> tell me about some of the challenges that you faced in you know, getting the business up off the ground. What was the biggest challenge mm. uh, looking back? Oh, that's real. That's a really interesting one. Do you know? I think I was. I think my, my biggest challenge was, if I'm completely honest, was my limited beliefs in myself. Sure. You know, the I don't want to. Don't want to kind of um, lean on anything. But yeah, there was definitely elements of imposter syndrome. You know, I'd been institutionalized. Right. I'd worked for somebody else for twenty odd years. I didn't know who I was without an organization to be attached to. Yes, working from home for a year or so during COVID helped gain that emotional and psychological independence. But there was still that kind of, you know, that 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 chatterbox inside me that was like, I'm not sure whether or not you're good enough to do this. I'm not sure whether or not you know enough. So I think that was really my, my own mind was my biggest challenge from a practical perspective. Hold on, before you go into the practical perspective, I just wanted to, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that. I think so many people need to hear like you say that because they might be having those same, you know, thoughts and, and emotions and, you know, no question in my mind that the number one thing that holds us back in the things we want to accomplish is ourselves and and limit self self-imposed limitations and you know questioning am i good enough do i am i knowledgeable enough and 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 that kind of thing how did you get through that in order to you know ultimately build a successful training business mm. i think the the challenge that i want to tackle is bigger than me And I had to park my insecurities on a shelf. And I I knew that the industry needed me. I don't mean that. That sounds a little bit arrogant, but I I I, I, I knew I had something to make. I could make a difference. I knew with my knowledge of the recruitment industry as a recruiter and my developing knowledge of inclusive, accessible and equitable, equitable recruitment, I could change the way that recruiters run their desks and hire and attract talent, which would ultimately make a difference to underrepresented candidates. And so every time, I guess, though, the chatterbox and, you know, the 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 feelings of not being enough, 
I kept just reminding myself of my mission and I was very, very clear on what my mission and my vision and my values were and what I needed to achieve. That was the first thing I wrote down when I set my business up. So it was like, okay, so you need to get over yourself. <laughs> Great <laughs> because you've answer. you've got work to do. <laughs> Great answer. I love that. That's, uh, yeah, your desire to make a difference and your ambition to, and your mission outweighed the kind of yeah. critical... Yeah you know, a self-talk. Um, mm -hmm. You just refocused on your purpose, what you're trying to achieve and the impact you're going to make. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. And you, I interrupted you before you said there were some practical aspects mm. as well. So I always say when everybody, anybody asks me about, you know, what were the challenges from a, from a practical perspective, I was so lucky. Um, my time at APSCO had given me access to an incredible community and a lot of those folk were years into running and earning their own businesses and it was just I, I kind of instead of talking to people about how do I do this how did you set up your business I was like if you could change three things if you could identify three things that you absolutely would not do if you set your business up again talk me through that and I spoke to so many people and it was whether it was I sat you know I started off with a GoDaddy website or I didn't have uh, my accounts online or I didn't have an accountant or I'd not registered the business or I'd not thought about my comms I'd not got my branding right I'd not really thought about what problem I was solving. I'd not really refined my marketing message. And I just I, I just wrote them all down and I thought, right, I'm not going to do that. So actually, have there been many bumps when it comes to running a business? No, because I avoided them all. That's amazing. <laughs> I was That's, really lucky. <laughs> yeah, that is uh, very fortunate. You had so many mentors and people you had relationships very. with that you could you could call on. And uh, APSCO is a fantastic organization as well. I've had Anne Swain on the show before. Um, and uh, so that's brilliant. You almost had a built-in business, mm -hmm. uh, you know, board of advisors, if I, you know, I unofficial board yeah. of advisors to help you get, um, get things rolling quickly. And so um, talk me through, like when you're working with recruitment businesses, um, what are the main, well, what? tell me the kind of work you're doing with them, first of all, let's start with that. So I tend to take a training and advisory approach yeah. rather than a consultancy. Mm -hmm. um, I play to my strengths. I'm really, really good at getting in front of an organization, delivering a concept and suggesting ways to tackle it. Um, give me... 25 policies to write and a, str a strategy document you probably will never see it again <laughs> so i'm like let me just go in there sprinkle the fairy dust give them some ideas inspire them give them the to-do list and then hold their hands through it but not do it for them great so Got that's it. the kind of approach i tend to take i developed i'm, I'm a massive fan of module learning mm -hmm. um bite-sized um really accessible training <laughs> rather than days and days delivering totally new concepts to recruiters i i just found i was reflecting on how i trained at my previous business how i've been taught to train and also how i learned mm -hmm. 
So I've essentially got a modular program which takes recruiters on a journey right from understanding the reasons why overrepresentation happens, really understanding what diversity and inclusion is in a recruitment setting, through to understanding unconscious bias, hiring habits, preferences, how that impacts us, our business and our candidates and our clients, how to make recruitment accessible, equitable um, and inclusive, really, really practical steps. So it's not just theory, it's like loads of how-to stuff as well. Mm -hmm. How to attract underrepresented talent, so how to really think about your EVP, how to package up your jobs in a way that's different to what you've always done, turning marketing strategy on its head when it comes to engaging with candidates that are not currently in your network, moving away from that cookie cutter approach that we have seen develop um, when it comes to hiring across the industry. And then finally, after all that kind of learning, looking at how do we have conversations with clients? Okay, how do we qualify clients? How do we spot the performers? How do we spot the good stuff? How do we how do we communicate to recruiters in terms of we know our stuff and we can help and develop them? How do we develop toolkits to take our learning and have that kind of like ripple effect, that butterfly effect? So it's I'm very much my my focus is on initially engaging with leadership teams. Mm-hmm. So they're usually the people I will have the conversation with. Um, I am, I don't work with everybody. I only work with organizations that get through my process in terms of how authentic is this? What is the motivation? What are they looking to achieve? Is it performative? Is it tick box? Mm. No, thanks. Mm -hmm. Right. Are you centering this around your people? Mm -hmm. Is it coming from a behavioral and ethics perspective? Do you want to do better? Do you care about inequality? Yes, we can talk about the commercials because ultimately we're not charities, but that's secondary. Are you prepared to centre your work around the people that work in your business or don't and you want to attract them? Are you prepared to centre your work around the lived experience of candidates who are marginalised? Yes, you are. Great, let's hang out. If not, it's a, by the end of that conversation, they've probably got the message anyway, to be fair, Mark. Are you worried about keeping your recruitment firm up to date with the latest technology? After all, your clients expect you to be ahead of the curve. But how do you select the right tech for your recruitment firm and make sure that you earn enough new business as a direct result to make back the cost of your investment? Which is why our friends at iIntro provide in-depth coaching alongside their technology to help you get the most out of your investment. They offer an extensive suite of tools, but let's just take one example, their behavioral assessment tool. It's built right into their online system, so you don't have to buy or learn a whole new platform. They also include training on how to use behavioral assessments to improve your pitching technique, while also increasing the longevity of your placements to a staggering 96% after 12 months. For a free demo of iIntro's suite of recruitment tools, including behavioral assessment, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. Remember, when you engage with our sponsors, you also help support this podcast. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained, then follow the instructions to get started. Talk to me about the performative tick box exercise, because I can't help feeling that is going to be a large proportion of uh, organizations' motivation to to do this rather than a true 
rather than the true believers. What, but but yeah. I don't know. I'm just guessing. What what have you found mm. to be the case? Yeah, I mean, I you know you you've, you've you're not just guessing. You've you know you're you're, you're right in 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 having that viewpoint. Um, I think the louder the conversation has got over the last couple of years around ED and I, uh, the more people we've got kind of like jumping on the bandwagon. Um, there are there is always going to be organisations that want to find a really quick fix, a shortcut to things. Who really believe that diversity and inclusion is about putting statements out on LinkedIn of things that you don't even understand, putting on an event, running a you know a webinar to chew the fat on the business benefits of EDI, but we're way past those conversations, Mark. We've been having those conversations for 20 years, right? They having conversations about the benefits of EDI doesn't change the outcomes for underrepresented and marginalized candidates, full stop. Mm. Um, but that takes work. It takes resources. It takes change. It takes trust in the process. It slows things down. It can broaden the gap between you and your fee, ultimately. So there are lots and lots of reasons why some businesses are just not prepared to change, but they love to talk about it mm. and be kind of very noisy. Um, and I think we have to be really, really careful of that because there's this kind of move towards we need to be seen to be doing something. Right. We need to have a voice on everything. When actually you don't have to have a voice on everything. You have to have a voice on things that are all related into hiring and recruitment. And you need to look at the things that are going on globally and socially and locally in the UK and link that into the employment piece, mm -hmm. right? Um so yes, there, there definitely is that worry that what happens when people put on a performance is they create a, a, a false sense of security for candidates. You know, if you're, for example, you're an organisation who's been out there this week banging the drum and making loads of noise about Trans Awareness Week's week, you're almost giving off that, that signal to the trans community that you're a safe space, that you get it, that you're committed to trans inclusion and candidates can trust you. If you're not doing the work internally, if your recruiters don't understand gender identity, if they haven't done any work around trans inclusion, what is the experience going to be of those candidates who potentially trusted that business? Mm. Massively damaging, setting people back, people facing even more discrimination and prejudice than you know than they do already and this is the danger and I sometimes think that marketing teams who lead this performance work they don't understand the impact they're using they're using people's lived experience to to look good to tick a box and I see I see this a lot especially the challenges that recruiters are facing at the moment. Um, in terms of quota meeting and tick box hiring, you know, sometimes the clients will come to me and say, we've got one of our largest clients is just, they're just renewing their contract with us and they've sent us this out. And they've said that they want, you know, this percentage of this group, this percentage of another group, this percent, they've got these targets in 2025, we need to look like this. No rhyme or reason or understanding behind it, no work being done to understand why they're not like this now. And they've tried internally a few initiatives, which surprise, surprise, haven't worked. And then turning to the recruitment industry and saying, this is your fault now. This is now your responsibility. You need to do something about it. And recruiters are, you know, they're actively, um, positively discriminating because of the pressure 
that the clients are putting on them. So instead of the clients saying, let's work together on this, okay, let's really look at what we're doing. They're setting quotas and asking recruiters to tick box. You know, I've heard instances where um, end clients have asked recruiters to literally tick boxes when it comes to identity marker um, and demographic surveys. Um, we need the diversity data on those five people that you've just put forward to tick our quotas and boxes. And recruiters have got no mechanism to do that because it's really complex collecting that data. They're on the phone asking candidates what their sexuality is and their gender identity. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. If you were a recruitment business owner in that position, your clients are trying to basically pass the buck onto, onto you. How would you handle that? What advice would you have for someone in that position? Because you can see that it's not, um, yeah, like what, what, what's your response to that? It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because I think as, as recruiters, we've got this, we've got this kind of um, desire to please our clients yeah. and to be really wary of like pushback. Unless you, I mean, late, in my later years of being a recruiter, I was so confident that I was just like, well, I'm one of the best in the space. So if you don't want to do it, then don't work with me. But somebody, Absolutely. not everybody, not, not everybody's got 17 years behind them to give them the gravitas or confidence to do that right. So I think we've been programmed to be like, a little bit to, to be a bit too agreeable. Um, I mean, if I was if I was a business owner now, I'd be you know I'd be really exploring the if my if my clients were you know being specific about who they wanted in the business, but not being clear on the reasons why. I'd really, I'd want to encourage them to really think about what they're trying to achieve through their hiring strategies. Mm. Um, I think that one thing I always try to encourage is that we start to engage with DNI leads, DNI directors within organisations. I think as a, as a business owner, that's definitely who I'd want to be talking to. Mm -hmm. Um, to either qualify, you know, where they're at on their journey and how we can support them or to just, you know, figure out whether or not I'm about to ask my recruitment team to piling a load of work for us just to recruit the, the usual suspects. So I, I, I guess I would be also focused on making sure that my recruiters had the skills and tools and the confidence to be talking about EDI. It's not a topic that you can fluff, you know, it's not something you can just blag and, you know, talk your way around. And it's also highly emotive. Some people see it as political. Mm, sure. Um, and it, it it scares people um, naturally, you know, do we, it, it's uncomfortable talking about how people are so marginalised because of their background circumstances and identity, right? Um, and I'd be really focused on getting the education into the business. Um, we would never ask a recruiter to go out and meet a client and take a brief or do a new business meeting with somebody we'd never worked with before without them being an absolute specialist in their specialism. Um, the the ability and capacity of the, the recruitment business and the services that we provide and that kind of like broader sector that the client's based in yet we're expecting recruiters to try and navigate conversations around something as complex as ED&I without them having that, that, that foundation learning. 
it doesn't necessarily, you know, for small organisations who just don't have the budget, although many of us in the space are financially accessible, that's really, really important to us. Um, it doesn't have to, it could be just, there's so much out there. I mean, there's so much information and insight, you know, on on the web, on Google, right? So it could be, you could approach it as you do your internal learning, right? Your internal learning and development. I think recruitment business leaders are not always open to learning about these kind of things because, dare I say it, some, just some, are they benefit from a huge amount of privilege. And when I say privilege, I talk a lot about job seeker and career privilege. So very, very few of them have actually faced a barrier to get where they were. Yes, they might have come from working class backgrounds, one-parent families, lived in council houses. They may have not had it easy, but their core identity hasn't been the reason why they've not gone to work. It's not been the reason why they've risen to the top, right? They hold a level of authority. And often it's really difficult for them to see that there's an issue for people. A lot of a lot of people, very, you know, very, very senior folk believe in that, you know, they believe that we operate in a meritocracy, right? Because they worked really hard and, you know, they were really focused and driven and they achieved what they achieved. They sometimes struggle to comprehend that it's a myth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because of their identity, it helped them. Yes, they were very driven and they were very focused and they worked hard, but they didn't have the obstacles that many people face, right? And these success stories, you know, people usually quote, well, look at Richard Branson. Rich, Richard Branson's one in a million, right? We're not a world full of Richard Bransons. So it's about actually understanding that even if you don't see it, if you, even if you don't live it, there's a, there's a problem. People face barriers into work. People's identities are the reason. They don't get jobs. They don't get shortlisted. They don't get paid properly. They don't get the glamour projects. They don't get the promotions, right? Facts, 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 facts. Um, so we need to understand why that's happening. And it's all about education, picking up a book and understanding the systemic reasons why people face inequality. It can take six hours of reading an audiobook to be enlightened with this stuff. And many, many times when I meet people, business leaders who are, they've got this unbelievable fire in the belly. It's because either something's happened to them or something's happened to their kids or they read a book or watched a program and the light bulb went on and they were like, crikey, we've got a massive responsibility here. And then the work starts. Interesting. So... I guess that's one of my questions, Joe, is given that this is such a complex issue that is systemic and that it's based on, you know, centuries, right, of uh, civilization to be at the point where we are now, it almost feels overwhelming. Like as a recruiter, it's like, whoa, what can I do really uh, uh, to tackle this, uh, especially in an environment where I'm just like, I've got targets I need to meet. I've got to, you know, do X number of placements per per uh, month and so on. And this just seems this seems enormous. So how do you break it down for people so that it feels like I can make a difference? So yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's a non-negotiable. It's got to be digestible for a recruiter with experience. There are different ways in which I deliver. 
I do a lot of work with experienced recruiters and then light versions of what I do with, you know, folks in like the early stages of the recruitment career. But what I do is I stay absolutely focused on the recruitment piece. I obviously get them to understand some of the challenges. We don't do absolute deep dives into things like um, gender inequality, racism, ableism. Yes, of course, I never shy away from those uh, topics, but we don't go into the systemic reasons. What we are, I take a solutions-based approach. I take a, I try to win over the hearts and minds from a, this will help you be better at your job. This will help you reach more candidates and increase your talent pools. This will help you win more business. This will help you develop stronger long-term relationships with your clients. This will differentiate you from your competitors. It will get you to think about additional products and services that you can bolt on, which most experienced recruiters will always be looking at diversification, right? So it's all about like getting the hearts and minds and getting them to see the advantages of it. Um, I talk a lot about retained propositions and exclusive work. Um, that is usually a bit of a hook to people because the majority of the recruiters I speak to are always looking at strengthening their retained proposition or converting their um, exclusive work into retained. So I get them into the mindset that actually inclusive recruitment is like that, you know, when you do a beautiful retained projects and, and it's multi-layered and it's a really deep dive into your candidate skills and experience and it involves competency matrices and EVPs and, you know, and deep dive interviews and scoring systems and all that stuff that really complements accessible and equitable recruitment. Um, I, I use that as a tool to really, you know, to get recruiters to think about, you know, we've got to always do, haven't we? When, whenever you're training recruiters, it's always got to be like, what's in it for them? And this is the bit where it starts to kind of, you know, make sense to them and seem logical and they can understand how this can benefit them, but also benefit their candidates. And this just, you know, we are really struggling at the moment for talent and the recruiters that I train are really open-minded and see this as a network expansion tool. Um, and it's all about the language that I use. It's how I make it, how I make it land. But it's about giving a bit of theory so they understand the why and then giving them the practical tools, but also getting them to understand that they don't have to go back to their desks and change everything that this may take six months to a year to embed everything. What they can do is go back to their desks and write better advertisements, right? They can go back to their desks and in the next client briefing call, ask the client about inclusive benefits and policies and what they're doing around culture and inclusion. There are some quick wins, but it's managing expectations and making folks really interested, fire in the belly, and then to work with them to implement it over a reasonable and achievable amount of time. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, this is good. Could you say more about why um, DE&I complements a retained solution mm. for the end client? Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think it's about the how close you get to the clients. I think any client that is demanding the quarters and you know and the the, the representation. Um, should be prepared to partner with one agency and give them that agency the commitment, the time and attention. Sometimes the immediate thought process is multiple agency 
diverse talent, right? But what happens is recruiters go immediate network, no diverse talent, usual suspects. So there's that kind of like making clients aware of the advantages of that retained proposition. Um, What I love about the retained proposition is how deep you go with the client. So that build out of a lot of clients don't even have an EVP. And often when we build a retained proposition, we almost build like a micro EVP for them, don't we? It's called a candidate document, right? It's really the stuff about the role. Yes, but it should really involve like their employee value proposition. So it's about a really deep dive into the client, really understanding the candidate, the client's motivations, what's going on in the business, what does their organisation look from a look like from a diversity and demographic perspective? Have they done an inclusion survey? Have they got the data? What do their policies look like? What do their benefits look like? Promotions process, management structure. What are they doing to change representation on their boards and senior leadership teams? What does their what do their family building benefits look like? Meeting other people around the business and getting the perspective of what it's like to work there, to build out the job job pack, right, which is what we do essentially when we're taking on a retained role. It's about then having the time because inclusive recruitment takes time. You know, the whole speed kills deals. Well, unfortunately, speed kills inclusion. Speed results in the usual suspects. Um, And so this is about recruiters not feeling that absolute pressure to go to this group of people, their black book, which surprise, surprise, is very, very, you know, is packed full of very, very similar people. So giving recruiters the time and the trust to be able to go out there and go beyond their immediate networks to reposition the role to folks that perhaps wouldn't have usually responded to an advert because it wasn't so in-depth and wasn't so detailed because the recruiter just didn't have that connection and insight with the client. For me, it's also about the recruitment process. So if I have time, I can make my recruitment process more equitable. I can produce audio, visual, um, recorded with closed captions and a British Sign Language interpreter video uh, versions of my job advert because I've got time. I can make my job description and EVP documents accessible. I can spend time with my recruiters, uh, with my candidates properly interviewing them. I'm not just going to go and do a bit of a chemistry check and a get to know. I'm going to run through a fully competency and behavioural value alignment type style interview process with them. An interview that takes an hour and a half, I'm going to produce for my client a competency um, competency matrix, right? I'm going to score people horizontally. I'm then going to only submit the candidates that score the highest because that's what we do, right? We don't hire the people, we don't put the people forward that we quite like. Um, and we think the, the, the hiring manager will like, we can only shortlist the people who score right? But we don't normally get time to do that in contingent recruitment. We then present our clients with the shortlist. We talk about skills and competency rather than the soft stuff, which allows loads of bias to come in. You know, because we've got that information, we've been given the time. You know, we can guide and advise clients on how to build a representative interview panel. We can get them to take out the chemistry test piece. We can get them to really think about value alignment questions. We can get them to go beyond social fit mindset and start to think about leadership, management, team dynamic fit, 
as opposed to social fit. Um, you know, it's just adding all those additional layers. And also from a candidate perspective, we look and sound like we know what we are talking about. For that moment in time, we are an external representative of that business, of that client business. The trust is there. We are through experience of delivering retained myself. The moment you tell somebody that you've got a role on retained, they immediately commit to process because they know that they've got more chance of getting the role with you. And I also think that if it is a retained proposition for inclusion and for more uh, underrepresented talent, they can trust that you know that your client provides a safe space because you've done your work. You know that that client will provide an, um, an environment where they're safe and valued and won't face discrimination and prejudice because you've done your due diligence. And you are, in my opinion and in my experience, you're more likely to be able to connect and engage with underrepresented talent and gain that trust through a retained proposition. Very long answer to your question. Joe, that was brilliant. <laughs> I have never heard anybody explain it that way before. That is like makes total sense to me. Have you ever dreamed of launching, scaling, and one day selling your recruitment business? If so, I highly recommend you speak to Recruitment Entrepreneur. Founded by former Dragon's Den star James Kahn, Recruitment Entrepreneur is the world's leading private equity firm specifically focused on the recruitment industry. They invest in startups and scale-ups and have already backed over 30 founders. There's no reason why you couldn't be their next joint venture partner. James's first company, Alexander Mann, sold in 2013 for $260 million. His second venture, Humana International, he grew with Doug Bugie to over 140 offices in 30 countries before selling to MRI. James and his team are actively looking for ambitious recruiters from across the United States and around the world who want to partner with them to launch and scale successful recruitment businesses. They provide the funding, expertise, mentoring, and back office support to make your dream a reality. To learn more about Recruitment Entrepreneur in the USA or anywhere globally, go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC as in venture capital. Book a discovery call with them and be sure to tell them that you were sent by Mark Whitby in the Resilient Recruiter podcast. Once again, visit recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC. You also gave loads of good ideas, practical ideas of uh, sort of specific things that people need to start doing and people recruiters need to start doing in order to have an inclusive process so you've talked about the ad copy itself you've talked about the actual job ad and or the job description being accessible like you gave the example of closed captions or even having sign language um you talked about during the selection process making it much more objective with scorecards and like competency frameworks and and that sort of thing. Um, are there any other things that should go on this checklist of like, what are some of the specific things recruiters need to do in order to make their process more inclusive? I think um, one of the key things is this kind of equity piece that we, we, we talk a lot at. Equity is really the doing, the doing side of diversity and inclusion, it results in the inclusion piece. And I, I talk a lot about um, having the time to be able to move away from a one-size-fits-all process and actually being able to 
speak with candidates and design your recruitment processes around them. So even simple things like being able to give the dates ahead, um, the dates and the times of interview, massively useful for candidates with caring responsibilities, childcare responsibilities, candidates with disabilities, candidates who are neurodivergent, um, very, very useful as well for, for women who do the lion's share of unpaid caring work, you know, who cannot just drop everything in 12 hours notice to put together a PowerPoint presentation and attend interview tomorrow. So you've got that, you know, the practical side of being able to give interview dates ahead and preparing candidates properly with, you know, giving um, structure of the competency-based questions ahead of interview. Again, a very, very Include, it's a great example of providing equity to then result in inclusion. Um, being able to accommodate people's needs in terms of how they want to be interviewed, whether that be in person or whether that be, you know, face to face or by using a British Sign Language for exa- uh, interpreter, you know, for example. Um, being able to, in terms of from a client services perspective, work with the client to redesign the job description. A huge part of the deselection process, okay? We talk, we see all the time these conversations around ghosting. Um, I absolutely believe that there is something that happens between a recruiter briefing a client candidate and then that client candidate never wanting to get in touch with the recruiter again. And I believe it's the job description. I think we sell dreams on the phone and the job description does a lot of work in terms of unpicking it. Most job descriptions are an average of, I think, 10 years old. They're absolutely loaded in bias and really unnecessary requirements that have been there forever and a day. If we have time we should be working with our clients to redefine that job description, to build more inclusive job de- descriptions and follow those principles, putting in the essentials, making them easy to read, taking out all the deselection points, producing different versions of the job description, because let's face it, not everybody wants something, a document to read these days, right? So additional services, working in partnership with clients to be able to advance the recruitment process, make job descriptions more equitable so people can access them in different ways. Um, that's just a couple of examples anyway, is that? Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, could you say more about deselection? I'm not familiar with that term. Okay. Oh, so, sorry, sorry. I use the term deselection when somebody sees something on a job description that um, would would inc- would m- result in them taking themselves out of the process. So a deselection point, for example, could be um, specifying, fi- specifying that somebody needs a degree, but the degree isn't necessarily needed. It's not an essential critical part of the job, but it's always been in the JD, right? It's been in the JD for 10 years, so we're not going to take it out. Um, it could be a deselection point. You know, things like, you know, in job descriptions, we see things about unnecessary driving licenses. We see things about English language skills, which, you know, can sometimes come across as being, you know, coded for, we want you to be this particular person. We don't want you to speak English as a foreign language, for example. Um, so there's 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 lots of deselection points. It could be to do with that you've, you know, that you forgot to put in there that there was hybrid working or the potential for a job share or flexible hours, work when you want, where you want. You know, we know the evidence and research shows us there that women are more likely to deselect themselves 
from a process if they did, don't see any written evidence of flexibility. Just hearing it from a recruiter just isn't enough. That, that you know, it needs to be there. So we just need to take the time to make sure that, you know, there's there's minimal deselection points and and, and and minimal reasons for people to take them out of process. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know that's brilliant. And this is should be happening anyway, right? Be, like things like clients saying, well, we need want someone who's degree qualified, but why? Like, does that mean if I show you a candidate who's capable of doing the job at a high level, but they don't have a degree, you don't want to see their you know, CV and challenging. I One thing that definitely comes across and, and why I think I, I would agree with you that this would be, um, by the way, Joe, just to let you know, I am a huge advocate of working on a retained basis or minimum on an exclusive basis, because I just don't think in a multi-agency scenario, we can do our job properly. Um, and what you're talking about is quite a thoughtful approach, really thinking through every step in this hiring process and how we can widen the talent pool rather than, um, you know, and make sure that we get the best cross-section of available talent. Um, mm. And that does take thought and and care and attention. Um in, in thinking about all these ideas, which I, I think are brilliant, by the way, thank you for that uh, mini training session. Uh, I've learned a lot already. <laughs> Where are recruitment agencies typically falling down? Like, what are the what are the quick fixes, the things that they're either the most important things? Like, if you think the 80-20 rule, order of importance, what are the most important steps? Yeah. So for me, the number one, um, the, the number one most important thing for us to think about is representation within our agency. Okay. So we know because of our experience that the recruitment agency lacks a huge amount of representation. There are certain pockets, organisations that I work with, that are incredibly diverse. They've been, they've consciously worked on that. But there are still organisations out there that are full of very, very similar people, right? For, for an industry, for a profession where there's no barriers to entry, we have to question why we are full of very, very similar people. The higher you get up an organisation as well, okay? Age is a massive challenge. We see in the exec space dominated by older recruiters and everything underneath is average age of what, 24, 25. We need to, candidates need to see themselves, okay? Candidates need to select recruiters that they know are gonna get them, that are gonna advocate them, that are gonna support them, that are gonna understand them, that they trust that they're not going to face deselection just because they've said they have a child or they have caring responsibilities or they have dyslexia or they have a, a disability. Candidates need to know that that's not going to be the case. And sometimes it's hard to connect when, for example, you know, you're in the late 
like your late forties to connect with somebody who's maybe twenty one and maybe a different gender from you, right? So I do think we need to be very, very mindful and intentional about how we build our recruitment businesses and really think about how do we get over ourselves with this concept of recruitment is a young person's game when it doesn't have to be, right? That's probably a whole other podcast. <laughs> but we need to talk about that. I think that we also need to think about how we attract candidates, okay? So websites, in my experience, are geared up to sell to clients. They are not geared up to make candidates feel anything. You will see on most websites, it is fully loaded when it comes to the client tab about how brilliant and beautiful this agency is. You click on the candidate tab, what do you get? Job drop down, okay? There's nothing there that makes me feel like I'm welcome, like I'm expected, like I'll be respected, like I'll be safe and that I'll trust you. There's no statements of, you know, how you're going to be able to support me. There's very, very little. And I think we need to take a 50-50 approach to market to candidates and market to clients because, in my opinion, it's the candidates who spend most time on our website. (laughs) Good point. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right? So why have we designed these really slick processes to find jobs and we've stopped saying hi to people, okay? So think about how we're marketing ourselves. Do we look like a group of people who are very, very similar? Do we talk in the same language as all the candidates that we're looking to attract? So, you know, website, again, it's a huge conversation to have, but mindful about what's on there. I think that... um, We need to somehow find a voice on equality, diversity and inclusion. We need to advocate for people who face barriers into work. Um, We need to kind of move away from a more performative kind of approach to that. And every time we're talking about, for example, because we're in the week, Trans Awareness Week, we need to not just be talking about Trans Awareness Week, we need to be talking about the 10 things that we're doing to be more inclusive to trans, for trans candidates. So it's taking a advocacy and doing approach, okay? And I think that um, it's about kind of looking at the education piece and looking at how we can make we can make small changes to the way that we recruit. We can produce adverts in different ways. We can be more flexible with processes. We can take bias out of decision making. We can talk more about inclusive benefits, more about policies. We can write better advertisements. We can be more mindful of how we're selecting candidates and making decisions when we've met them for interview. You know, we can improve the way that we interview instead of having like chats with people and coffees and lunches and breakfasts, which is very much what it turned into for me in the later stages of my recruitment career. We start to get recruiters back to basics. We start to get them trained up in how to equip them with the skills to run a proper competency-based interview. Because I think there's too many chats going on there's not enough skills assessment, behavioural assessment and value alignment that, I mean, we could be here all day, Mark. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> I think I've got that's great. <laughs> Listen, uh, the bit that really resonated there when you said it was, and I, it's obvious when you say it, is the um, how diverse is your actual recruiting firm? Because that's almost like an advert for how like if people don't see anyone that looks like them or that they can 
identify with, then that sends a message, doesn't it, I guess? Whereas if you've already made the effort to create a diverse company yourself, then presumably that already shows that you are not just talking about it, but you're actually doing it, right? Um, so, but he, this is an objection I've heard before, and I wondered your opinion as to whether this has any validity, which is, um, you know, this stuff's all great for bigger companies, but we're just a really small business, so we, we, like, we can't really afford to worry about diversity and equity inclusion because we just need to, you know, get people who can bill and, you know, and get on with it. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts around that? And what, well, let's start with that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot, I mean, you've got, you've got multiple challenges here. So a lot of the time when an, you know, a recruitment business is young, um, I mean that from, you know, how long it's been going, um, there's an approach to, right, okay, we've not got a huge amounts of money, so we need to keep salaries and costs down. So you tend to get founders hiring people in their immediate um, network um, to be, you know, to, to kind of sit at the top table. They tend to be homogenous groups, people that they already know and have hung out with for the, most of their careers. And then the focus is on, like, is, is on young recruiters because they don't cost as much. And by the time you know it, two years later, your average your average age is 24 years old. So yeah, I get it. It's challenging, but you've got to decide on like how committed to the process are you? You know, are you going to get you, you know, do you want to, it's very, very challenging, I think for, and I don't want just want to put labels on things, but you find that in the retained and um, exclusive space. You tend to get recruiters who have experience behind them. You tend to have more mature recruiters, yeah. especially for exec, because there's that sense of, we recognize it, don't we, in that space? But it's like, you've got to be able to, because you, your candidates have got to be able to see um, maturity and experience and people that they connect with. But yet we don't always, you know, we, we kind of, and, and, and a lot of organizations I'm working with that are aspiring to do all of that stuff, but yet they're going to really struggle with a very, very young demographic because it'll be hard for them to win retained work when they, you know, they, they can't produce can, uh, recruiters who are going to represent the talent that they're looking to, to attract. Um, I think that any organization that's not seriously thinking about this, um, they will have to think about it in a few years um i think that as we see and actually you know to, to mention it, it's not just you know your gen x's and your millennials um that that have got this you know that 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 it, you know your, your your gen zers are really really passionate they i mean the data tells us that actually gen zers are more plugged into equality diversity and inclusion oh for sure than yeah absolutely the gen x like the me and the millennials so actually you could still fill your business with people who are incredibly passionate and driven but you've got to give them the tools to do it so it might be that you've made that you know you've made that kind of thought processes oh it's not for us but who isn't it for? When was the last time you told all the, you know, all your kind of early careers people? When did you ask them about how they feel about kind of like ED&I? Um, so I would say 
it's it's really difficult. I'm, I don't know the exact answer, but it, I think it has to be on the agenda because if you're in a space, if you're in the tech space, for example, so the tech space is really, really struggling, isn't it? Because we're not seeing enough up, uptake from people who are not white and male and cis and able-bodied and straight. <laughs> we're not seeing people out of that group take up STEM, STEM subjects at school and at uni and college and all the rest of it. So it's an area, and what we're seeing the impact of that, you know, we're seeing the tech space struggle because there's not enough perspective around the design table. And so as our clients evolve and start to recognise that actually we need representation because it's going to affect our bottom line and we're designing the wrong products and services, that anybody supplying into the tech space is going to have to have solutions for that. So do you think about it as an afterthought when you've gone through your growth spurt and your 200 headcount um, in size, or do you start to think about it at the beginning? You know, when you're just, you know, you've got your founding team and you're starting to grow. Um, that would be, that's my yeah. thoughts on it. Sorry if no, that's No, absolutely. Not I think basically the message I'm getting is <clears throat> as a recruitment business, you need to be your own first client when it comes to this topic and apply it to your own business. And, um, that experience will then allow you to be able to help other clients because you actually have not just, it's not theoretical, but you've actually mm -hmm. implemented it yourself. Yeah. And then does that make sense to you? That's probably how I would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's perfect because, you know, if you're, if you're trying to convince a client that this is something that you take really seriously and then they have a quick audit of your website or LinkedIn and go, hang on a minute. <laughs> There's a disconnect. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's there's a disconnect. Interesting. Um, we I recently invited um, Simon Lafosse from Lafosse Associates to do a private Q and A with um, some of our clients, and they have a really interesting um, company, which is. Uh, do you already know about this show? They're one of my clients. Well, LaFosse are one of my clients. Oh, awesome. I've worked okay. With them this, Brilliant this year, company. Yeah. 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 So yeah, they, they actually have yeah. a company that um, hires grads, but it's it's kind of uh, a diverse. It's a very uh, DEI focused recruiting mm -hmm. drive, but then they actually train them in coding because mm -hmm. and then place them with clients and. The idea being that there's not enough diversity in the, like, if you just look at experienced uh, programmers, it's not that diverse a um, talent pool. Mm. And so how mm. do you fix that? Well, it has to, you know, uh, you go right back to the start and actually recruit those people into this program and, and give them the, mm. the training. It's a really cool idea. Yeah. I think LaFosse La are a very interesting organisation. They are definitely one to watch. So they're not only looking at gas, uh, grassroots challenges and looking at, you know, what, what they're taking responsibility for changing the pipeline into their client spaces. Exactly. Um, they are also... I'm really excited about what they're going to be doing next year. You know, I'm not going to give too much away. <laughs> I don't know what, they, but from a, you know, from 
I've been working with their internal um, learning and development team. So I do, I either work with recruiters and leadership teams or I actually train internal L&D teams and they've got some brilliant people in there, great resource. And it just made sense for them to really get under the bonnet of my training so they could develop their own program themselves to work in a way that gets it delivered across all the multi-layers within their business of, of, of leadership, middle management, early careers. And um, I've had eyes on what they're looking to do and their D&I L&D program. And for me, it could, I, I think it could be industry leading. Wow. it's. I, think, I mean, it's a yeah. great company. No, no question about yeah. it. Um, Joe, sadly, we're out of time, but that's been really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and knowledge. And you've obviously done a huge amount of learning, thinking and and, uh, work in this area. Um, So any listeners who want to connect with Joe, obviously, Joe Major on LinkedIn. Uh, Her website is diversityinrecruitment.com. Joe, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.